0: This is Set Aside Some Time, an MSPN podcast, and it's brought to you by the National MSP Network, or
1: MSPN for short. And now, on to the episode.
0: Welcome to Set Aside Some Time. I'm your host for today, Timothy Mercer, and joining me is Kira Koba and Amber Warman, Today we will be discussing Section 111 and changes, as well as changes that have been made and changes that are anticipated on the horizon. Um, So today we will dive into that and try and figure out what's coming and what we can do to help make things better and how we can be prepared for the changes that we know are on the horizon. So today we'll start with uh, some things that the Section 111 committee has been working on, some changes that they've already uh, Dealt with and gotten some answers to, and things that we can can concretely prepare for, uh, right now. So Amber, Kira, I'll leave it to you guys. So what sort of things are have you guys been working on? What things can we be prepared for?
2: Well, good morning, Tim. Uh, this is Amber and uh, my glorious co-chair and counterpart, Kira Koba. Um, I'm currently a senior workoff examiner for the Montana Municipal and Authority. Um, treasurer of the MSPN Board of Directors and co chair of the Section 111 and Conditional Payment lien
1: Committee. So, thanks for having me today, Tim.
0: My pleasure. My pleasure.
1: Hi, I'm Kira Koba. Um, I am the principal at Allen Koba Compliance Solutions. I was a nurse first and then found my way into law school and ended up in the MSP space, and the rest is history. So, I'm your bona fide MSP um, nerd and I've dragged Amber, um, kicking and screaming, (laughs) but now she pretends to love it into the Medicare (laughs) space with me and we're really excited to be here today, Tim, to talk to everybody about, um, what the section 111 committee and conditional payment committee is working on. So Amber, do you want to talk uh, about our, our current projects that we're working on?
2: Yes. Well, I was fortunate enough to be asked by Kira to be a part of this committee and man, have I learned a lot um, in the last year, in a couple of months. We've been pretty busy on the committee and we've had a lot of um, participation across the industry and in MSP and membership, and we're very grateful for that. Um, you know, one of the things and we've, we've talked about before on these podcasts is the implementation of the paid act that happened Um, in December of of 2021, and uh, we've been kind of monitoring as a group how that's been going, how the implementation has happened, and some of the feedback we've been getting in our committee is that some of the contact information that's provided back from the agency in that reporting for the Part C and D plans is, is sometimes not the contact information we would hope for. Um, This can be just a a basic customer service line. Um, And with some of these larger companies who have multiple plans, some concern as to whether or not we're even getting the contact information to to the plan that we're looking for. So um, Kira and I, um, as well as some other committee members, have had the opportunity to provide some feedback to CMS about this. And one of the things that was new to us that we really appreciated from them was the explanation that the contact information for these Part C&D plans that's coming back to the RREs in the reporting is actually supplied by the plans themselves through um, an HBMS system. So, so theoretically, um, what, what's happening are the different plans are having some sort of Kind of application slash registration that's occurring on a, a regular basis, whether that's annually, um, semi-annually. Not entirely sure, but um, now that the agency is aware that there's some concerns and questions around this, we anticipate some some communication down the road clarifying um, where this information is exactly coming from. But apparently, um, the the carriers are themselves, or these plans actually are providing this coordination of benefit contact information through this HBMS system. And so the information that the agency is gathering from that, from the plans, is actually being kicked out to the RREs. So I think one thing that we've uncovered is, okay, so now that we kind of know where that information is being pulled from the agency, how can we... Coordinate with our membership. Coordinate with these plans to be sure that they know exactly where that information is pulling from, and making sure that that app, that information is in fact the contact information for our RREs to best notify these plans of settlements, so that we can make sure to protect their interest as well. So, um, as I said, we we brought this to the agency's attention. It seemed that they were kind of unaware of these concerns before. They said, you know, they're more than happy to kind of take it back and, and maybe provide some more guidance to the industry as to where those contact informations are are being provided and, and filled out. And as a committee, one thing that's come up um, from, from folks that actually are, are representing these plans has been as an RRE, when in doubt, contact the legal department, contact the subrogation department. Um, if you're you're getting to a general customer service line, you know, ask for a subrogation department, ask for that legal department, because it's really important for the RRE to be able to document and then just notify these plans and, and get it to the right folks um, who can, can review whether or not there's been any payments made that shouldn't have been um, or opportunities for liens. Carrie, did you have, I mean, does that pretty much sum up where we've, Kind of made
1: some progress, at least with the contact information concerns? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that's really awesome is that CMS doesn't really have an obligation to do anything more than follow what the law was. And the law said basically you need to provide these RREs with contact information and plan enrollment information. Now, the plan enrollment information is only helpful to the extent that you would be able to reach out to the plan and actually get. Um, some correspondence going back and forth to get to the lien. So it's awesome that CMS as an agency is willing to help with this because it's really it is outside of the scope of what they're legally required to do. Um, and that's great that they're they're willing and able to help all the stakeholders and and get this fixed. I what is also I found interesting is um, our our committee is so well rounded that we actually have, um some rather large uh, Medicare Advantage plan representation and Part D plan representation on our calls. And it was interesting because when we got this information from the agency that it's actually the plans providing the address, it's not CMS just like looking up a random corporate address and putting it in. The plans themselves weren't even aware of that. So, you know, sometimes that the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. You have these big advantage plans. I mean, there's over four thousand private Medicare Advantage plans in the United States, but most Medicare Advantage uh, enrollees, so most Medicare beneficiaries, are enrolled in like the top ten plans. So you have a lot of small plans, but the primary plans are Aetna, Kaiser, Humana, um, H or sorry, Highmark, um, Optum, which is United Healthcare. So. Those are the big, heavy hitters. And with a lot of those, they actually would prefer that you send them information via an email address. So this was also something that we've asked about with CMS in terms of, all right, well, let's talk about what type of address in the 21st century we actually want <laughs> to, to be using as well, right? right? Because right. who mails stuff anymore? I mean, that's not, right. that's not cool. I mean, that's like, you know, <laughs> It's like going back in time and having a horse take you around in a buggy. So, you know, we're <laughs> we're an electronic world. And with this type of communication, it would be a lot more efficient, especially with the deficiencies of the mail system and the overload on the um, transportation and, and delivery system in this country to begin with, because everyone expects things yesterday. We've we've moved into an era where when you order something, you expect it to come to your doorstep within like six hours. <laughs> it's like unbelievable. Um, and it's put a huge strain on our system. So let's take things out of the system that don't need to be, that can be easily transmitted electronically. Um, I think the Go Paperless yes. system of conditional payment recovery on the Part A, B side should be mimicked in the Part C and D arena. So if you're interested in finding out better contact information or helping us with that mission, that's one of our missions and goals this year as a committee. And we've had a couple volunteers, but we need more. Um, and if you join the committee, uh, you'll be able to get this information on a monthly basis in terms of email addresses. Um, We had contact information for the Rawlings Group, which does collection for a lot of the big plans. MultiPlan, which also does collections for a lot of the big plans. Humana, um, Optum. Most of these companies prefer you email their subrogation department to get this done. They don't want the mail going to the front desk of their corporate headquarters in the middle of nowhere, United States. (laughs)
2: And 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 it's a timely process, right? Because as an adjuster, if I'm contacting a a part C and D plan, I'm probably looking at settlement. And I'm 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 in kind of a a time constrained uh you know opportunity for settlement here. And we want to try to move this along as as quickly as possible and make sure that we're doing the right things and contacting the right plans. So uh, just a little plug here. This is one of the benefits of joining MSBN and also joining our committee. So
1: if you mm-hmm, want to get involved, mm-hmm.
2: join MSBN.
1: The other thing to to mention as well is the volume, right? So getting access to the correct um, addresses or contact information for these plans has always been important. But the sheer volume of Part C and D lean liens that are going to, and have already started, to um, need to be repaid due to the implementation of the PAID Act is astronomical. So it's going to become increasingly important um, to carriers and to beneficiaries that want to move these cases to settlement that we find an efficient way with efficient timeframes to move these types of liens to conclusion. Um, when you go from having one lien on every file for Medicare to having three, four, I mean, it could be up to 13 because Medicare will give you so many different (laughs) pieces of plan information, depending on how old your claim is. Um, you know, it's definitely something that we are working to improve upon. And if anybody is listening and has additional, um, tips or suggestions on how we can help to continue to improve this process, we'd love to hear from you. All right, Absolutely.
0: so let's move on to what's next. Yeah, so next we'll look at some changes that we're anticipating, some changes that we're beginning preparation for, um, things that we see on the horizon.
2: Um, one of the one of the things I wanted to touch base on in in kind of this realm is is the um, ongoing responsibility in medicals field. Um, one of the the things that we've been discussing in our uh, committee meetings is the scenarios where beneficiaries are contacting. Uh, them and, and the CRC and, and actually BCRC um, terminating the ongoing responsibility for medical. So they're calling, or maybe their counsel's calling um, because they maybe were seeking treatment for something and they got a notice in the mail that said, hey, there's this claim out there. Um, we, we're not going to make payment for this. And so they will have to call in response to a, a notice like that to Medicare directly, and then um, terminations can happen. Um, They'll update the file, the common, I think it's the common working file, right? And then Mm -hmm. um, they, meanwhile, the carrier has no idea um, that this has occurred. And given the fact that there's some, you know, rulemaking happening, civil monetary penalties with with reporting being um, accurate, the the question arises well, if if a beneficiary contacts them, you, you know, terminates this ORM, and then um, the carriers reporting something different, what does that look like from, from an accuracy standpoint, especially um, with some of the, the movements with civil monetary penalties that we're anticipating? And so through, through our communication, um, the agency has been super responsive to that. They are looking at um, and working on the back end on implementing a response file to RREs um, that is pretty much similar to what they're already doing on the GHP side, which is notifying us through that response file, the RREs, that those terminations or changes have happened,
1: and that's that's fantastic, right, Kira? Absolutely. Um, group health plans already doing it, um, and I, in, you know, like Amber has been explaining, they're gonna they're gonna just mimic the way that the group health plan reporting is done, so you're going to get there's going to be uh, basically a response file that comes back. So um, Amber's correct. It is the common working file. that is updated, but also it's the section 111 reporting is actually being deleted. Um, So when the beneficiaries call and they answer a host of questions and it isn't completely clear to us yet what specific questions are being asked but they're successfully um, convincing the BCRC representatives that um, ORM has terminated and it should be deleted and they're deleting it. And from a carrier perspective, this might be okay. If it, We all know that there are Section 111 reporting errors. There's, star. Um, it, there's a lot of data fields. It's a complex system. I don't think it's as simple as anyone thought it was going to be. Um, and sometimes you're trying to fit a square peg in a round hole because you've got what actually goes on in your claim and you've got what CMS's definitions are for how they want their data fields being filled out. And this is actually going to lead us right into what we're going to talk to you about next. Um, but at the end of the day, when the beneficiary terminates that ORM, it's like the record never existed. Now, maybe CMS has It archived somewhere, maybe they can find that it happened, maybe the carrier has record of it, but it can also cause problems on the carrier system side, if there's an update that they want to send, or if they need to terminate ORM actually properly, maybe the beneficiary terminated it improperly. So at the end of the day, what we're trying to push for is not the inability of the beneficiary to have say in what goes on with their benefits because ORM being open and closed impacts a beneficiary. And I think all of us as either current or prospective Medicare beneficiaries uh, would appreciate control over their own health benefits to a certain, to whatever extent is appropriate. Um, so I don't think it's a, a negative thing. The beneficiaries have control, some control here because they have no control over the section 111 reporting data that goes in. And we all know it's not always perfect. Uh, we've seen horror stories where Beneficiaries have gotten legitimate non-work related or non-claim related treatment denied by Medicare because the carrier reported the wrong codes, or they reported the wrong dates, or you know there was something incorrect. So it can be very time-consuming and frustrating for beneficiaries. Um, definitely, there's frustrations on both sides of most of Medicare secondary payer compliance. Um, but the goal is transparency on both sides. So, if the beneficiary terms ORM, the carers just ask that they know about it and vice versa. Um, we've also been asking, which leads us into our wish list, about a portal that you could actually log into and potentially the beneficiary should be probably be able to log into it as well to see what is the section 111 reporting data that's been reported. Um, so, that it is more transparent. We've actually seen reporting systems for clients where they can't actually see what's being transmitted behind the scenes. They know it's in their claim system, but they are not 100% clear on what gets transmitted. I think the other group of people that this would be really nice for are um, defense attorneys, claimant attorneys, um, any type of representative that might be involved somehow in the claim but not sure how things are getting transmitted. Even carriers that are using TPAs or self-insured mm-hmm. companies using TPAs, their TPAs might be doing the reporting for them. They don't know what's being sent. Maybe they want to do an audit of it. Maybe maybe they want to see what's going on there. So um
2: and they're ultimately still responsible. Off- they're ultimately yeah. still responsible for the accuracy, right? Yeah. So um it,
1: absolutely
2: it, I would say like a, a really common theme of what we've been working on and ultimately what our, our wish list is. Is exactly what Kira is saying, where kind of transparency of information, coordination of information, because ultimately yep. the better, more timely, and accurate communication we can have, the better our reporting is, um, the hopefully less communication beneficiaries are getting long after a claim about treatment denials because of some sort of reporting yep. issue or something happening. Because, I mean, really, the beneficiary in this process is the one that gets the notice. Of, of a denial of some sort of benefit out of the blue, oftentimes, because they're not really, as you pointed out, they're not responsible for the section 111 reporting. They most have no idea what that even is. Right. Um, and, and so from when we put the, the beneficiary in as a priority and we, we look at everything that's happening here and the reasons it's happening, the more that, that we can communicate with the agency, the plans, the RREs, and really get that timely, accurate, not just in avoidance of civil monetary penalties, by the way, but because mm-hmm. ultimately it's more efficient, it's less cost, right? When you are yep. when you have the correct information, yeah, there's less of an opportunity for some sort of penalty, but there's also the benef- less likelihood the beneficiary is getting a scary notice in the mail, um, less opportunity for incorrect conditional payment liens that then require investigation and response and plug up the system. And now we're appealing. You have some RREs that are actually just paying incorrect CPLs yeah. because from a cost benefit analysis, it's easier to pay the $300, you know, lien than it is to spend the amount of time paying people to keep appealing. Um, yeah. And, and what I can say in my limited time um, on the board of MSPN and with this new committee specifically um, the, the, Communication from the agency has been great. Their willingness to meet with us and and listen to kind of some feedback and take that uh, you know into account, um, as Kira pointed out earlier. Uh, there's a, a lot of this stuff. You know, they they really don't have to do. They're choosing to do it. They see the benefits. They are putting the beneficiaries' concerns in mind. And ultimately, it's just we're we're really grateful for the opportunity to to get an audience and provide some of this feedback, and it's 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 working, it's helping. We're we're making some some strides. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Wow. So we've already so we've already touched on one wish list, one um, wish list action. Um. So now there's another one that I know we wanted to talk about today that actually has a call to action along with it. Um. Sort of as Kira said trying to take a stop taking a fitting a square peg into a round hole, sort of a one size fits all for specific ICD codes and and accident dates and that sort of thing. So if you guys want to discuss the the wishlist item that we're looking for and, and what we need from MSPN members, as well as anybody who has who has a stake in this.
1: Yeah, this is sort of my baby. So I, <laughs> I don't mind taking this one, Amber, if you want me to tee it up here. So I have been trying to it's gotta be going on five years now, at least. I have been um, trying to figure out an appropriate workaround for situations where you have a case and you might be settling one body part, not the other, or you might be um terminating just ORM, not even settling it on one body part and not the other, and how you appropriately report that so that the record actually reflects the correct thing from a CMS standpoint and from a carrier perspective. Now, there is, in the reference guide a very specific um, table. It's called an event table. CMS likes to do these for reporting because it kind of explains to you if then, then this, if this, then this. Um, And it takes you through how to do things from a factual standpoint if you have specific questions. The problem with the way that the event table is set up and CMS does understand this is there are a lot of claim system limitations for carriers in being able to actually accomplish Things the way that CMS would like them to be accomplished via the event table suggestion. For example, if you terminate ORM on a claim and you settle a specific body part um, on a claim, but there's other body parts that remain open, there isn't a great way in most claim systems to accomplish deleting out body parts effectively and or reporting or opening a new claim for the additional body parts that are going to remain open. So what we've been asking for for years and we're getting closer and we do think that CMS understands the issue here, especially with civil monetary penalties on the horizon is a way to tie the dates of ORM being yes and ORM termination and the TPOC dates and amounts to specific body parts. So for example, you do one claim input file that has one um, reference or one claim number, one policy number associated with it, multiple body parts. You could have multiple TPOC dates and amounts and you could have, Multiple body parts at any given point that have ORM or stopped ORM or continued ORM or turned on and off during the period, during the life of the claim. Great example of that is a holiday in different states like New York or Maryland, where the work comp carrier takes a holiday from ORM responsibility. There's no way right now to turn ORM off and then turn it back on without CMS thinking that you still had it from the date of injury to your ORM termination date. Um, So what we're really asking for is a more specific way to report ORM term dates tied to diagnostic codes and TPG dates tied to diagnostic codes um, within the same claim input file. They understand it. It would be a big change. But it would help not only the carriers be able to communicate what they're doing in the plan more effectively, but it would help the coordination of benefits be able to actually recover what is still due and owing, without them trying to recover on things that are recoverable because you can't get that specificity into your Section 111 reporting. When that happens, both sides spend an exceptional amount of time and effort. To end up really only costing everyone money and no one, the government not actually recouping any money and the carrier being out the money to pay for the appeals. Amber, do you have any like specific examples that you can think of that have happened on any of your claims you could add to that to kind of shed a yeah, more practical light to it? I've got a ton. <laughs> <actually>. <laughs> I mean,
2: really, when you think about it, any claim that has any more than one diagnosis um, related to it, whether it's a condition that's being disputed, whether Mm -hmm. it's say, you know, I I like to use the example of, let's say a motor vehicle accident where, you know, I have an injured worker who's driving, you know, the parks and rec truck and gets in an accident. And let's say, you know, 2020, and uh, let's say, you know, it's a 66 year old seasonal worker and he's got osteoarthritis, well documented in his health history is on his way to a TKA even prior to and in this oh, wow. motor accident um you know it's mostly a, a neck whiplash it's not it's not super you know severe it's mostly whiplash but it is noted in the ER report that he's got maybe a, a scratch or a laceration on the side of that knee. Um, and so you know technically we have objective medical findings of a of that particular injury. And so it's part of the claim well, if as it stands, you know, you're you're looking at the section 111 reporting. Say, let's say this is a Medicare beneficiary, and now you have, you know, you have the neck whiplash ICD code. You have this laceration on the knee uh, ICD code. Um, but the laceration really required maybe no medical treatment i mean it was a part of maybe that initial er maybe it was mentioned in a follow up visit that it had healed or was healing with no signs of infection and ultimately we're not we're not really foreseeing any ongoing kind of one and done very minimal however for the neck we're having this ongoing very complicated maybe whiplash with a, a lot of treatment um, maybe even some dispute in some of the, the diagnostics that come back for that part of body. And right now it's really hard to communicate years down the road when maybe that knee ORM terminated, it's it's not ongoing. But that gentleman say goes in, sees his regular orthopedic provider, and his doctor says, Okay, you know what? You've got to end stage here degeneration. Yep. This is not gonna get better. We got to do this total knee. Um, They go to get authorization, claimant gets a notice in the mail that says, no, we're not paying for this. You have this, you know, maybe this is now in 2024 and the claimants, the letter says, well, you've got this claim with, you know, MMIA and we're not paying for this. Um, It's 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 just really hard to communicate that in the Section 111 reporting like currently. It's that you just, you kind of delete that ICD code off of the report. And that's how we're communicating to CMS that that is dropped off. That's no longer on there. But the problem is, is exactly circling back to what Kira had said earlier. A lot of the people who are actually responsible for inputting this information, such as examiners,
1: um, mm-hmm.
2: don't have access to see the historical perspective of what's been reported. We can't see That history. And so, Mm -hmm. say, you know, I drop off the claim, another examiner picks it up, the knee laceration, they can't even see that that was ever a part of that based on the part of the claim system that they can see. And it really goes back to what I I broached earlier, which is really timely, accurate communication. And if we had the ability to tie ORM and TPOX to specific ICD codes on a claim, then it would be very clear when we've dropped off of that, there's no further treatment for the laceration um, or it meets one of those kind of newly released uh, parameters of of being able to term. Um, If if we could put that date in there, communicate that, see that it's been communicated appropriately. While in in my example, the neck continues and is blank and, and hasn't had anything, it may have avoided that uh, shock and awe of that letter from Medicare when this you know poor gentleman yeah. is going in for something and forgets that he even had a cut on his knee yes. five years ago. And, you know, it's, it's just really what, what I think everybody involved, the beneficiary, the RRE, the agency, is, is really timely, accurate information um, as efficiently as possible. And whatever we can do, whatever ideas we can come up with, Ms. Kira here coming up with tying Mm -hmm. the ORM and TPOC dates to the diagnoses. These are, these are, these are ideas that can really, uh, remove a lot of headache for all parties involved. And that's kind of one of the goals of our committee, right. Is, is to try to communicate these brainstorm and, and in that effort kind of, um, Going back to this tying the the ORNs and TPOX to the diagnostic codes, we've communicated with the agency, and they've made it clear that this is this is possible, right? They can they can do this. They can add this functionality into the reporting. However, as one can expect, it's it's kind of a big update, um, and and so before they're you know really and rightfully so interested in in really taking a look at what that would take, doing that and implementing that type of update. They really want to see some metrics from the industry of how often, like how 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 many claims are we talking about here? How often is, are these types of scenarios happening? As a claims examiner, as I said earlier, um, any claim that has more than one diagnosis, a part of it, has the potential for those ORM and TPOCs um, happening uh, at different times, you know, from different ICD codes, And so what they've asked from from us and what we've turned to our committee and asked is, okay, so so from the RREs, you know, what kind of ideas do you have of metrics that we could provide back to the agency um, to Mm -hmm. really to really demonstrate how either often this happens, how many you know, what percentage of claims that you're seeing? Could this potentially happen Um, and really show them how this this particular issue right here could solve also? a lot of unnecessary uh, conditional payment liens coming down the pipe. 100%.
1: Mm -hmm. Amber, you had a good idea. Well, I mean, here's the problem. No one tracks the type of metric that CMS was asking for, which is how many cases settle one clean and leave another one open. No one has that metric. (laughs) It's just like not something that people track. But I think to your point, the possibility is there on mm-hmm. any claim with more than one body part injured. And that's a significant number of claims. Um, it's also very popular in certain jurisdictions. So California is one of them. They have a ton of continuing trauma claims that they might settle out a shoulder, but the knee is still active. It's very common in certain industries where there's a lot of like stress-related injuries and things like that. Um, So the industry actually lends itself to settling certain body parts out, but leaving the ones that are treating open, things like that. Um, So it's definitely something um, that is unique in the sense that it does lend itself to be more common in certain areas than others. But across the board, it's a problem for anyone that runs into it. So we're really hoping we can get some traction on this this year. That is going to be our big push for leading us into quarter 2 of 2022. Uh <laughs> so I mean hopefully we can get some more some more traction with that this year. It's definitely going to be a big change.
0: Yeah, so I guess <clears throat> the next uh, the only question left is how can MSPN members help out with us getting getting more traction with this. What concrete steps can they take getting information to you guys that can assist with this?
1: Join the committee. I mean, that's really all we need at this point. CMS they know enough about this issue. It's really going to just be persistence and numbers. So, if we can get a big enough committee push and a big enough support from our industry to um focus CMS in on this I think it will be good to go
0: there you have it so not only for this reason but also for the the wealth of information that that this committee gets I would highly recommend to anybody mm-hmm. listening to to join the sexual Eleven conditional payment committee it's oh, so thank it you Tim. Definitely, <laughs> definitely consider and being a part of you will you will not regret it
2: <laughs> well, thanks for having us, Tim.
0: Oh, it's been my pleasure. And uh, if there's nothing else, I guess that will that will end our time today, and we can we can go on and continue changing the world.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so thank you, Amber and Kira, for joining, me. and uh, and until next time, this has been set aside some time.